magistrates, and they became alarmed when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and placated them and led them out and asked that they leave the city. When they had come out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they saw and encouraged the brothers, and then they left. Acts chapter 17 Paul in Thessalonica When they took the road through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they reached Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Following his usual custom, Paul joined them, and for three Sabbaths he entered into discussions with them from the Scriptures, expounding and demonstrating that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead, and that this is the Messiah, Jesus, whom I proclaim to you. Some of them were convinced and joined Paul and Silas. So, too, a great number of Greeks who were worshipers, and not a few of the prominent women. But the Jews became jealous and recruited some worthless men loitering in the public square, formed a mob, and set the city in turmoil. They marched on the house of Jason, intending to bring them before the people's assembly. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city magistrates, shouting, These people who have been creating a disturbance all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them. They all act in opposition to the decrees of Caesar and claim instead that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city magistrates, who, upon hearing these charges, took a surety payment from Jason and the others before releasing them. Paul in Berea The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas to Berea during the night. Upon arrival, they went to the synagogue of the Jews. These Jews were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with all willingness and examined the scriptures daily to determine whether these things were so. Many of them became believers, as did not a few of the influential Greek women and men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica learned that the word of God had now been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there too, to cause a commotion and stir up the crowds. So the brothers at once sent Paul on his way to the seacoast, while Silas and Timothy remained behind. After Paul's escorts had taken him to Athens, they came away with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Paul in Athens While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he grew exasperated at the sight of the city full of idols. 
So he debated in the synagogue with the Jews and with the worshipers, and daily in the public square with whoever happened to be there. Even some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers engaged him in discussion. Some asked, What is this scavenger trying to say? Others said, He sounds like a promoter of foreign deities because he was preaching about Jesus and resurrection. They took him and led him to the Areopagus and said, May we learn what this new teaching is that you speak of? For you bring some strange notions to our ears. We should like to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians, as well as the foreigners residing there, used their time for nothing else but telling or hearing something new. Paul's Speech at the Areopagus Then Paul stood up at the Areopagus and said, You Athenians, I see that in every respect you are very religious. For as I walked around looking carefully at your shrines, I even discovered an altar inscribed to an unknown God. What therefore you unknowingly worship, I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all that is in it, the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in sanctuaries made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands because he needs anything. Rather, it is he who gives to everyone life and breath and everything. He made from one the whole human race to dwell on the entire surface of the earth, and he fixed the ordered seasons and the boundaries of their regions so that people might seek God, even perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move, and have our being, as even some of your poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Since, therefore, we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divinity is like an image fashioned from gold, silver, or stone by human art and imagination. God has overlooked the times of ignorance, but now he demands that all people everywhere repent, because he has established a day on which he will judge the world with justice, through a man he has appointed, and he has provided confirmation for all by raising him from the dead. When they heard about resurrection of the dead, some began to scoff, but others said, We should like to hear you on this some other time. And so Paul left them. But some did join him and became believers. Among them were Dionysius, 
a member of the court of the Areopagus, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Acts chapter 18 Paul in Corinth After this he left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. He went to visit them, and, because he practiced the same trade, stayed with them and worked, for they were tent-makers by trade. Every Sabbath he entered into discussions in the synagogue, attempting to convince both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began to occupy himself totally with preaching the word, testifying to the Jews that the Messiah was Jesus. When they opposed him and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your heads. I am clear of responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So he left there and went to a house belonging to a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next to a synagogue. Crispus, the synagogue official, came to believe in the Lord along with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians who heard believed and were baptized. One night in a vision, the Lord said to Paul, Do not be afraid. Go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. No one will attack and harm you, for I have many people in this city. He settled there for a year and a half, and taught the word of God among them. Accusations Before Gallio But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews rose up together against Paul and brought him to the tribunal, saying, This man is inducing people to worship God contrary to the law. When Paul was about to reply, Gallio spoke to the Jews, If it were a matter of some crime or malicious fraud, I should, with reason, hear the complaint of you Jews. But since it is a question of arguments over doctrine and titles and your own law, see to it yourselves. I do not wish to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them away from the tribunal. They all seized Sosthenes, the synagogue official, and beat him in full view of the tribunal. But none of this was of concern to Gallio. Return to Syrian Antioch Paul remained for quite some time, and after saying farewell to the brothers, he sailed for Syria, together with Priscilla and Aquila. At Syncrie he had his hair cut, because he had taken a vow. 
When they reached Ephesus, he left them there, while he entered the synagogue and held discussions with the Jews. Although they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent, but as he said farewell, he promised, I shall come back to you again, God willing. Then he set sail from Ephesus. Upon landing at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. After staying there some time, he left and traveled in orderly sequence through the Galatian country and Phrygia, bringing strength to all the disciples. Apollos A Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, an eloquent speaker, arrived in Ephesus. He was an authority on the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and with ardent spirit spoke and taught accurately about Jesus, although he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wanted to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. After his arrival, he gave great assistance to those who had come to believe through grace. He vigorously refuted the Jews in public, establishing from the scriptures that the Messiah is Jesus. Acts chapter 19 Paul in Ephesus While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior of the country and came down to Ephesus, where he found some disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you became believers? They answered him, we have never even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. He said, How were you baptized? They replied, With the baptism of John. Paul then said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Altogether there were about twelve men. He entered the synagogue, and for three months debated boldly with persuasive arguments about the kingdom of God. But when some, in their obstinacy and disbelief, disparaged the way before the assembly, he withdrew and took his disciples with him and began to hold daily discussions in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years with the result that all the inhabitants of the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Jews and Greeks alike.
so extraordinary were the mighty deeds God accomplished at the hands of Paul, that when face cloths or aprons that touched his skin were applied to the sick, their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. THE JEWISH EXORCISTS Then some itinerant Jewish exorcists tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those with evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. When the seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high priest, tried to do this, the evil spirit said to them in reply, Jesus I recognize, Paul I know, but who are you? The person with the evil spirit then sprang at them and subdued them all. He so overpowered them that they fled naked and wounded from that house. When this became known to all the Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus, fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in great esteem. Many of those who had become believers came forward and openly acknowledged their former practices. Moreover, a large number of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in public. They calculated their value and found it to be 50,000 silver pieces. Thus did the word of the Lord continue to spread with influence and power. Paul's Plans When this was concluded, Paul made up his mind to travel through Macedonia and Achaia, and then to go on to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must visit Rome also. Then he sent to Macedonia two of his assistants, Timothy and Erastus, while he himself stayed for a while in the province of Asia. THE RIOT OF THE SILVERSMITHS About that time a serious disturbance broke out concerning the way. There was a silversmith named Demetrius, who made miniature silver shrines of Artemis, and provided no little work for the craftsmen. He called a meeting of these and other workers in related crafts, and said, Men, you know well that our prosperity derives from this work. As you can now see and hear, not only in Ephesus, but throughout most of the province of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and misled a great number of people by saying that gods made by hands are not gods at all. The danger grows not only that our business will be discredited, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be of no account, and that she, whom the whole province of Asia and all the world worship, will be stripped of her magnificence. When they heard this, they were filled with fury and began to shout, 
Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city was filled with confusion, and the people rushed with one accord into the theater, seizing Gaius and Aristarchus the Macedonians, Paul's traveling companions. Paul wanted to go before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent word to him advising him not to venture into the theater. Meanwhile, some were shouting one thing, others something else. The assembly was in chaos, and most of the people had no idea why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, as the Jews pushed him forward, and Alexander signaled with his hand that he wished to explain something to the gathering. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Finally, the town clerk restrained the crowd and said, You Ephesians, what person is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image that fell from the sky? Since these things are undeniable, you must calm yourselves and not do anything rash. The men you brought here are not temple robbers, nor have they insulted our goddess. If Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a complaint against anyone, courts are in session and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. If you have anything further to investigate, let the matter be settled in the lawful assembly. For as it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's conduct. There is no cause for it. We shall not be able to give a reason for this demonstration. With these words, he dismissed the assembly. Acts chapter 20 Journey to Macedonia and Greece When the disturbance was over, Paul had the disciples summoned, and, after encouraging them, he bade them farewell and set out on his journey to Macedonia. As he traveled throughout those regions, he provided many words of encouragement for them. Then he arrived in Greece, where he stayed for three months. But when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return by way of Macedonia. Return to Troas Sopater, the son of Pyrrhus from Berea, accompanied him, as did Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derbe, Timothy, Antichicus, and Trophimus from Asia, who went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. We sailed from Philippi after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and rejoined them five days later in Troas, where we spent a week. 
Eutychus restored to life. On the first day of the week, when we gathered to break bread, Paul spoke to them because he was going to leave on the next day, and he kept on speaking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, who was sitting on the window sill, was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. Once overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story, and when he was picked up, he was dead. Paul went down, threw himself upon him, and said as he embraced him, Don't be alarmed, there is life in him. Then he returned upstairs, broke the bread, and ate. After a long conversation that lasted until daybreak, he departed. And they took the boy away alive and were immeasurably comforted. Journey to Miletus We went ahead to the ship and set sail for Assos, where we were to take Paul on board, as he had arranged, since he was going overland. When he met us in Assos, we took him aboard and went on to Mytilene. We sailed away from there on the next day and reached a point off Chios, and a day later we reached Samos, and on the following day we arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus in order not to lose time in the province of Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if at all possible, for the day of Pentecost. Paul's Farewell Speech at Miletus From Miletus he had the presbyters of the church at Ephesus summoned. When they came to him, he addressed them, You know how I lived among you the whole time from the day I first came to the province of Asia. I served the Lord with all humility and with the tears and trials that came to me because of the plots of the Jews, and I did not at all shrink from telling you what was for your benefit or from teaching you in public or in your homes. I earnestly bore witness for both Jews and Greeks to repentance before God and to faith in our Lord Jesus. But now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem. What will happen to me there, I do not know, except that in one city after another the Holy Spirit has been warning me that imprisonment and hardships await me. Yet, I consider life of no importance to me, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to bear witness to the gospel of God's grace. But now I know that none of you to whom I preached the kingdom during my travels will ever see my face again. And so I solemnly declare to you this day, 
that I am not responsible for the blood of any of you, for I did not shrink from proclaiming to you the entire plan of God. Keep watch over yourselves and over the whole flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you overseers, in which you tend the church of God that he acquired with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come among you, and they will not spare the flock. And from your own group, men will come forward, perverting the truth, to draw the disciples away after them. So be vigilant, and remember that for three years, night and day, I unceasingly admonished each of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to that gracious word of His that can build you up and give you the inheritance among all who are consecrated. I have never wanted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You know well that these very hands have served my needs and my companions. In every way, I have shown you that by hard work of that sort, we must help the weak, and keep in mind the words of the Lord Jesus, who himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had finished speaking, he knelt down and prayed with them all. They were all weeping loudly as they threw their arms around Paul and kissed him, for they were deeply distressed that he had said that they would never see his face again. Then they escorted him to the ship. Acts chapter 21 Arrival at Tyre When we had taken leave of them, we set sail, made a straight run for cause, and on the next day for Rhodes, and from there to Patara. Finding a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went on board and put out to sea. We caught sight of Cyprus, but passed by it on our left, and sailed on towards Syria, and put in at Tyre, where the ship was to unload cargo. There we sought out the disciples and stayed for a week. They kept telling Paul through the Spirit, not to embark for Jerusalem. At the end of our stay we left and resumed our journey. All of them, women and children included, escorted us out of the city, and, after kneeling on the beach to pray, we bade farewell to one another. Then we boarded the ship, and they returned home. Arrival at Ptolemais and Caesarea We continued the voyage and came from Tyre to Ptolemais, where we greeted the brothers and stayed a day with them. On the next day we resumed the trip and came to Caesarea, where we went to the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four virgin daughters gifted with prophecy. We had been there several days when a prophet named Agabus 
came down from Judea. He came up to us, took Paul's belt, bound his own feet and hands with it, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is the way the Jews will bind the owner of this belt in Jerusalem, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the local residents begged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul replied, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? I am prepared not only to be bound, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Since he would not be dissuaded, we let the matter rest, saying, The Lord's will be done. Paul and James in Jerusalem After these days we made preparations for our journey, then went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea came along to lead us to the house of Manasson, a Cypriot, a disciple of long standing, with whom we were to stay. When we reached Jerusalem, the brothers welcomed us warmly. The next day, Paul accompanied us on a visit to James, and all the presbyters were present. He greeted them, then proceeded to tell them in detail what God had accomplished among the Gentiles through his ministry. They praised God when they heard it, but said to him, Brother, you see how many thousands of believers there are from among the Jews, and they are all zealous observers of the law. They have been informed that you are teaching all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to abandon Moses, and that you are telling them not to circumcise their children or to observe their customary practices. What is to be done? They will surely hear that you have arrived. So do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take these men and purify yourself with them, and pay their expenses, that they may have their heads shaved. In this way, everyone will know that there is nothing to the reports they have been given about you, but that you yourself live in observance of the law. As for the Gentiles who have come to believe, we sent them our decision that they abstain from meat sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from unlawful marriage. So Paul took the men, and on the next day, after purifying himself together with them, entered the temple to give notice of the day when the purification would be completed and the offering made for each of them. Paul's Arrest When the seven days were nearly completed, the Jews from the province of Asia noticed him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd, and laid hands on him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere 
against the people and the law and this place. And what is more, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this sacred place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him, and supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was in turmoil, with people rushing together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the gates were closed. While they were trying to kill him, a report reached the cohort commander that all Jerusalem was rioting. He immediately took soldiers and centurions and charged down on them. When they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The cohort commander came forward, arrested him, and ordered him to be secured with two chains. He tried to find out who he might be and what he had done. Some in the mob shouted one thing, others something else. So, since he was unable to ascertain the truth because of the uproar, he ordered Paul to be brought into the compound. When he reached the steps, he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob, for a crowd of people followed and shouted, Away with him! Just as Paul was about to be taken into the compound, he said to the cohort commander, May I say something to you? He replied, Do you speak Greek? So then, you are not the Egyptian who started a revolt some time ago and led the four thousand assassins into the desert? Paul answered, I am a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city. I request you to permit me to speak to the people. When he had given his permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned with his hand to the people, and when all was quiet, he addressed them in Hebrew. Acts chapter 22 Paul's Defense Before the Jerusalem Jews My brothers and fathers, listen to what I am about to say to you in my defense. When they heard him addressing them in Hebrew, they became all the more quiet. And he continued, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city. At the feet of Gamaliel I was educated strictly in our ancestral law and was zealous for God, just as all of you are today. I persecuted this way to death, binding both men and women and delivering them to prison. Even the high priest and the whole council of elders can testify on my behalf. For from them I even received letters to the brothers and set out for Damascus to bring back to Jerusalem in chains for punishment those there as well. On that journey, as I drew near to Damascus, 
about noon, a great light from the sky suddenly shone around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I replied, Who are you, sir? And he said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. My companions saw the light, but did not hear the voice of the one who spoke to me. I asked, What shall I do, sir? The Lord answered me, Get up and go into Damascus, and there you will be told about everything appointed for you to do. Since I could see nothing because of the brightness of that light, I was led by hand by my companions and entered Damascus. A certain Ananias, a devout observer of the law and highly spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and stood there and said, Saul, my brother, regain your sight. And at that very moment I regained my sight and saw him. Then he said, The God of our ancestors designated you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear the sound of his voice for you will be his witness before all to what you have seen and heard. Now, why delay? Get up and have yourself baptized and your sins washed away, calling upon his name. After I had returned to Jerusalem, and while I was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance, and saw the Lord saying to me, Hurry, leave Jerusalem at once, because they will not accept your testimony about me. But I replied, Lord, they themselves know that from synagogue to synagogue I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I myself stood by, giving my approval and keeping guard over the cloaks of his murderers. Then he said to me, Go, I shall send you far away to the Gentiles. Paul Imprisoned They listened to him until he said this, but then they raised their voices and shouted, Take such a one as this away from the earth. It is not right that he should live. And as they were yelling and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the cohort commander ordered him to be brought into the compound and gave instruction that he be interrogated under the lash to determine the reason why they were making such an outcry against him. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion on duty, Is it lawful 
for you to scourge a man who is a Roman citizen and has not been tried? When the centurion heard this, he went to the cohort commander and reported it, saying, What are you going to do? This man is a Roman citizen. Then the commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, he answered. The commander replied, I acquired this citizenship for a large sum of money. Paul said, But I was born one. At once those who were going to interrogate him backed away from him, and the commander became alarmed when he realized that he was a Roman citizen and that he had had him bound. Paul Before the Sanhedrin The next day, wishing to determine the truth about why he was being accused by the Jews, he freed him and ordered the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin to convene. Then he brought Paul down and made him stand before them. Acts chapter 23 Paul looked intently at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have conducted myself with a perfectly clear conscience before God to this day. The high priest Ananias ordered his attendants to strike his mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you indeed sit in judgment upon me according to the law, and yet in violation of the law order me to be struck? The attendants said, Would you revile God's high priest? Paul answered, Brothers, I did not realize he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not curse a ruler of your people. Paul was aware that some were Sadducees and some Pharisees, so he called out before the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of Pharisees. I am on trial for hope in the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the group became divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, or angels, or spirits, while the Pharisees acknowledge all three. A great uproar occurred, and some scribes belonging to the Pharisee party stood up and sharply argued, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. The dispute was so serious that the commander, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, ordered his troops to go down and rescue him from their midst and take him into the compound. The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for just as you have borne witness to my cause in Jerusalem, 
so you must also bear witness in Rome. Transfer to Caesarea. When day came, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than forty who formed this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves by a solemn oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. You, together with the Sanhedrin, must now make an official request to the commander to have him bring him down to you as though you meant to investigate his case more thoroughly. We, on our part, are prepared to kill him before he arrives. The son of Paul's sister, however, heard about the ambush, so he went and entered the compound and reported it to Paul. Paul then called one of the centurions and requested, Take this young man to the commander. He has something to report to him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and explained, The prisoner, Paul, called me and asked that I bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. The commander took him by the hand, drew him aside, and asked him privately, What is it you have to report to me? He replied, The Jews have conspired to ask you to bring Paul down to the Sanhedrin tomorrow, as though they meant to inquire about him more thoroughly, but do not believe them. More than forty of them are lying in wait for him. They have bound themselves by oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are now ready and only wait for your consent. As the commander dismissed the young man, he directed him, Tell no one that you gave me this information. Then he summoned two of the centurions and said, Get two hundred soldiers ready to go to Caesarea by nine o'clock tonight, along with seventy horsemen and two hundred auxiliaries. Provide mounts for Paul to ride and give him safe conduct to Felix, the governor. Then he wrote a letter with this content. Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency the Governor Felix, greetings. This man, seized by the Jews and about to be murdered by them, I rescued after intervening with my troops when I learned that he was a Roman citizen. I wanted to learn the reason for their accusations against him, so I brought him down to their Sanhedrin. I discovered that he was accused in matters of controversial questions of their law and not of any charge deserving death or imprisonment. Since it was brought to my attention that there will be a plot against the man, I am sending him to you at once and have also notified his accusers to state their case against him before you. So the soldiers, according to their orders, took Paul and escorted him by night to Antipatris, 
The next day they returned to the compound, leaving the horsemen to complete the journey with him. When they arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and presented Paul to him. When he had read it and asked to what province he belonged and learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I shall hear your case when your accusers arrive. Then he ordered that he be held in custody in Herod's praetorium. Acts chapter 24 Trial Before Felix Five days later the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and an advocate, a certain Tertullus, and they presented formal charges against Paul to the governor. When he was called, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since we have attained much peace through you, and reforms have been accomplished in this nation through your provident care, we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all gratitude. But in order not to detain you further, I ask you to give us a brief hearing with your customary graciousness. We found this man to be a pest. He creates dissension among Jews all over the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazareans. He even tried to desecrate our temple, but we arrested him. If you examine him, you will be able to learn from him for yourself about everything of which we are accusing him. The Jews also joined in the attack and asserted that these things were so. Then the governor motioned to him to speak, and Paul replied, I know that you have been a judge over this nation for many years, and so I am pleased to make my defense before you. As you can verify, not more than twelve days have passed since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Neither in the temple, nor in the synagogues, nor anywhere in the city did they find me arguing with anyone or instigating a riot among the people. Nor can they prove to you the accusations they are now making against me. But this I do admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our ancestors, and I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and written in the prophets. I have the same hope in God as they themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous. Because of this, I always strive to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After many years, I came to bring alms for my nation and offerings. While I was so engaged, they found me, after my purification, in the temple without a crowd or disturbance. But some Jews from the province of Asia, who should be here before you to make whatever accusation they might have against me, 
or let these men themselves state what crime they discovered when I stood before the Sanhedrin, unless it was my one outcry as I stood among them that I am on trial before you today for the resurrection of the dead. Then Felix, who was accurately informed about the way, postponed the trial, saying, When Lysias, the commander, comes down, I shall decide your case. He gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that he should not prevent any of his friends from caring for his needs. Captivity in Caesarea Several days later, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish. He had Paul summoned and listened to him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. But as he spoke about righteousness and self-restraint and the coming judgment, Felix became frightened and said, You may go for now. When I find an opportunity, I shall summon you again. At the same time, he hoped that a bribe would be offered him by Paul, and so he sent for him very often and conversed with him. Two years passed, and Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. Wishing to ingratiate himself with the Jews, Felix left Paul in prison. Acts chapter 25 Appeal to Caesar Three days after his arrival in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and Jewish leaders presented him their formal charges against Paul. They asked him, as a favor, to have him sent to Jerusalem, for they were plotting to kill him along the way. Festus replied that Paul was being held in custody in Caesarea and that he himself would be returning there shortly. He said, Let your authorities come down with me, and if this man has done something improper, let them accuse him. After spending no more than eight or ten days with them, he went down to Caesarea, and on the following day, took his seat on the tribunal, and ordered that Paul be brought in. When he appeared, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem surrounded him and brought many serious charges against him, which they were unable to prove. In defending himself, Paul said, I have committed no crime either against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. Then Festus, wishing to ingratiate himself with the Jews, said to Paul in reply, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there stand trial before me on these charges? Paul answered, I am standing before the tribunal of Caesar. This is where I should be tried. I have committed no crime against the Jews, as you very well know.
If I have committed a crime or done anything deserving death, I do not seek to escape the death penalty. But if there is no substance to the charges they are bringing against me, then no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, after conferring with his council, replied, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. Paul before King Agrippa When a few days had passed, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived in Caesarea on a visit to Festus. Since they spent several days there, Festus referred Paul's case to the king, saying, There is a man here left in custody by Felix. When I was in Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and demanded his condemnation. I answered them that it was not Roman practice to hand over an accused person before he has faced his accusers and had the opportunity to defend himself against their charge. So when they came together here, I made no delay. The next day I took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought in. His accusers stood around him, but did not charge him with any of the crimes I suspected. Instead, they had some issues with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died, but who Paul claimed was alive. Since I was at a loss how to investigate this controversy, I asked if he were willing to go to Jerusalem and there stand trial on these charges. And when Paul appealed that he be held in custody for the emperor's decision, I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar. Agrippa said to Festus, I too should like to hear this man. He replied, Tomorrow you will hear him. The next day Agrippa and Bernice came with great ceremony and entered the audience hall in the company of cohort commanders and the prominent men of the city, and, by command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa, and all you here present with us, look at this man, about whom the whole Jewish populace petitioned me here and in Jerusalem, clamoring that he should live no longer. I found, however, that he had done nothing deserving death, and so when he appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. But I have nothing definite to write about him to our sovereign. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and particularly before you, King Agrippa, so that I may have something to write as a result of this investigation. For it seems senseless to me to send up a prisoner without indicating the charges against him. Acts chapter 26 
King Agrippa Hears Paul Then Agrippa said to Paul, You may now speak on your own behalf. So Paul stretched out his hand and began his defense. I count myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am to defend myself before you today against all the charges made against me by the Jews, especially since you are an expert in all the Jewish customs and controversies. And therefore, I beg you to listen patiently. My manner of living from my youth a life spent from the beginning among my people, and in Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They have known about me from the start, if they are willing to testify, that I have lived my life as a Pharisee, the strictest party of our religion. But now I am standing trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our ancestors. Our twelve tribes hope to attain to that promise as they fervently worship God day and night. And on account of this hope, I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought unbelievable among you that God raises the dead? I myself once thought that I had to do many things against the name of Jesus the Nazarene, and I did so in Jerusalem. I imprisoned many of the holy ones with the authorization I received from the chief priests, and when they were to be put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many times, in synagogue after synagogue, I punished them in an attempt to force them to blaspheme I was so enraged against them that I pursued them even to foreign cities. On one such occasion, I was traveling to Damascus with the authorization and commission of the chief priests. At midday, along the way, O king, I saw a light from the sky brighter than the sun shining around me and my traveling companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goad. And I said, Who are you, sir? And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Get up now and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness of what you have seen of me and what you will be shown. I shall deliver you from this people and from the Gentiles to whom I send you, to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may obtain forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been consecrated by faith in me. And so, King Agrippa, 
I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. On the contrary, first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout the whole country of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, I preached the need to repent and turn to God and to do works giving evidence of repentance. That is why the Jews seized me when I was in the temple and tried to kill me. But I have enjoyed God's help to this very day, and so I stand here testifying to small and great alike, saying nothing different from what the prophets and Moses foretold, that the Messiah must suffer, and that, as the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Reactions to Paul's Speech While Paul was so speaking in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, You are mad, Paul. Much learning is driving you mad. But Paul replied, I am not mad, most excellent Festus. I am speaking words of truth and reason. The king knows about these matters, and to him I speak boldly, for I cannot believe that any of this has escaped his notice. This was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You will soon persuade me to play the Christian. Paul replied, I would pray to God that sooner or later not only you, but all who listen to me today might become as I am except for these chains. Then the king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice and the others who sat with them. And after they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing at all that deserves death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Acts chapter 27 Departure for Rome When it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they handed Paul and some other prisoners over to a centurion named Julius of the cohort Augusta. We went on board a ship from Adramidium, bound for ports in the province of Asia, and set sail. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. On the following day, we put in at Sidon, where Julius was kind enough to allow Paul to visit his friends who took care of him. From there, we put out to sea and sailed around the sheltered side of Cyprus because of the headwinds, and crossing the open sea off the coast of Cilicia, and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. Storm and Shipwreck 
There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship that was sailing to Italy and put us on board. For many days we made little headway, arriving at Gnidus only with difficulty, and because the wind would not permit us to continue our course, we sailed for the sheltered side of Crete off Salmoni. We sailed past it with difficulty and reached a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Much time had now passed, and sailing had become hazardous, because the time of the fast had already gone by. So Paul warned them, Men, I can see that this voyage will result in severe damage and heavy loss, not only to the cargo and the ship, but also to our lives. The centurion, however, paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. Since the harbor was unfavorably situated for spending the winter, the majority planned to put out to sea from there in the hope of reaching Phoenix, a port in Crete facing west-northwest, there to spend the winter. A south wind blew gently, and thinking they had attained their objective, they weighed anchor and sailed along close to the coast of Crete. Before long, an offshore wind of hurricane force, called a northeaster, struck. Since the ship was caught up in it and could not head into the wind, we gave way and let ourselves be driven. We passed along the sheltered side of an island named Kauda and managed only with difficulty to get the dinghy under control. They hoisted it aboard, then used cables to undergird the ship. Because of their fear that they would run aground on the shoal of Certus, they lowered the drift anchor and were carried along in this way. We were being pounded by the storm so violently that the next day they jettisoned some cargo, and on the third day, with their own hands, they threw even the ship's tackle overboard. Neither the sun nor the stars were visible for many days, and no small storm raged. Finally, all hope of our surviving was taken away. When many would no longer eat, Paul stood among them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice and not have set sail from Crete, and you would have avoided this disastrous loss. I urge you now to keep up your courage. Not one of you will be lost, only the ship. For last night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood by me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You are destined to stand before Caesar. And behold, for your sake, God has granted safety to all who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men. I trust in God 
that it will turn out as I have been told. We are destined to run aground on some island. On the fourteenth night, as we were still being driven about on the Adriatic Sea, toward midnight, the sailors began to suspect that they were nearing land. They took soundings and found twenty fathoms. A little farther on, they again took soundings and found fifteen fathoms. Fearing that we would run aground on a rocky coast, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. The sailors then tried to abandon ship. They lowered the dinghy to the sea on the pretext of going to lay out anchors from the bow. But Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes of the dinghy and set it adrift. Until the day began to dawn, Paul kept urging all to take some food. He said, Today is the fourteenth day that you have been waiting, going hungry, and eating nothing. I urge you, therefore, to take some food. It will help you survive. Not a hair of the head of any one of you will be lost. When he said this, he took bread, gave thanks to God in front of them all, broke it, and began to eat. They were all encouraged and took some food themselves. In all, there were 276 of us on the ship. After they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship by throwing the wheat into the sea. When day came, they did not recognize the land, but made out a bay with a beach. They planned to run the ship ashore on it if they could. So they cast off the anchors and abandoned them to the sea, and at the same time they unfastened the lines of the rudders, and hoisting the foresail into the wind, they made for the beach. But they struck a sandbar and ran the ship aground. The bow was wedged in and could not be moved, but the stern began to break up under the pounding of the waves. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners so that none might swim away and escape, but the centurion wanted to save Paul and so kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to the shore, and then the rest, some on planks, others on debris from the ship. In this way, all reached shore safely. Acts chapter 28 Winter in Malta Once we had reached safety, we learned that the island was called Malta. The natives showed us extraordinary hospitality. They lit a fire and welcomed all of us because it had begun to rain and was cold. Paul had gathered a bundle of brushwood and was putting it on the fire when a viper 
escaping from the heat, fastened on his hand. When the natives saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to one another, This man must certainly be a murderer. Though he escaped the sea, justice has not let him remain alive. But he shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no harm. They were expecting him to swell up or suddenly to fall down dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say that he was a god. In the vicinity of that place were lands belonging to a man named Publius, the chief of the island. He welcomed us and received us cordially as his guests for three days. It so happened that the father of Publius was sick with a fever and dysentery. Paul visited him, and, after praying, laid his hands on him and healed him. After this had taken place, the rest of the sick on the island came to Paul and were cured. They paid us great honor, and when we eventually set sail, they brought us the provisions we needed. Arrival in Rome Three months later, we set sail on a ship that had wintered at the island. It was an Alexandrian ship with the Dioscuri as its figurehead. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days, and from there we sailed round the coast and arrived at Regium. After a day, a south wind came up, and in two days we reached Puteoli. There we found some brothers and were urged to stay with them for seven days. And thus we came to Rome. The brothers from there heard about us and came as far as the Forum of Appius and Three Taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul gave thanks to God and took courage. When he entered Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. Testimony to Jews in Rome Three days later, he called together the leaders of the Jews. When they had gathered, he said to them, My brothers, although I had done nothing against our people or our ancestral customs, I was handed over to the Romans as a prisoner from Jerusalem. After trying my case, the Romans wanted to release me because they found nothing against me deserving the death penalty. But when the Jews objected, I was obliged to appeal to Caesar, even though I had no accusation to make against my own nation. This is the reason, then, I have requested to see you and to speak with you, for it is on account of the hope of Israel that I wear these chains. They answered him, We have received no letters from Judea about you. 
nor has any of the brothers arrived with a damaging report or rumor about you. But we should like to hear you present your views, for we know that this sect is denounced everywhere. So they arranged a day with him and came to his lodgings in great numbers. From early morning until evening, he expounded his position to them, bearing witness to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and the prophets. Some were convinced by what he had said, while others did not believe. Without reaching any agreement among themselves, they began to leave. Then Paul made one final statement. Well did the Holy Spirit speak to your ancestors through the prophet Isaiah, saying, Go to this people and say, You shall indeed hear, but not understand. You shall indeed look, but never see. Gross is the heart of this people. They will not hear with their ears. They have closed their eyes, so they may not see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and be converted, and I heal them. Let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He remained for two full years in his lodgings. He received all who came to him, and with complete assurance and without hindrance, he proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Introduction to New Testament Letters In the New Testament canon, between the Acts of the Apostles and Revelation, there are 21 documents that take the form of letters or epistles. Most of these are actual letters, but some are more like treatises in the guise of letters. In a few cases, even some of the more obvious elements of the letter form are absent. See the introductions to Hebrews and to 1 John. The virtually standard form found in these documents, though with some variation, is dependent upon the conventions of letter writing common in the ancient world, but these were modified to suit the purposes of Christian writers. The New Testament letters usually begin with a greeting, including an identification of the sender or senders and of the recipients. Next comes a prayer, usually in the form of a thanksgiving. The body of the letter provides an exposition of Christian teaching, usually provoked by concrete circumstances, and generally also draws conclusions regarding ethical behavior. There often follows a discussion of practical matters, such as the writer's travel plans, and the letter concludes with further advice and a formula of farewell. Fourteen of the twenty-one letters have been traditionally attributed to Paul, 
One of these, the letter to the Hebrews, does not itself claim to be the work of Paul. When it was accepted into the canon after much discussion, it was attached at the very end of the Pauline corpus. The other thirteen identify Paul as their author, but most scholars believe that some of them were actually written by his disciples. See the introductions to Ephesians, Colossians, 2 Thessalonians, and 1 Timothy. Four of the letters in the Pauline corpus, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, are called the captivity epistles because in each of them the author speaks of being in prison at the time of writing. Three others, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, are known as the pastoral epistles because, addressed to individuals rather than communities, they give advice to disciples about caring for the flock. The letters of the Pauline corpus are arranged in roughly descending order of length from Romans to Philemon, with Hebrews added at the end. The other seven letters of the New Testament that follow the Pauline corpus are collectively referred to as the Catholic epistles. This term, which means universal, refers to the fact that most of them are directed not to a single Christian community, as are most of the Pauline letters, but to a wider audience. See the introduction to the Catholic letters. Three of them, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, are closely related to the 4th Gospel, and thus belong to the Johannine Corpus. The Catholic letters, like those of the Pauline Corpus, are also arranged in roughly descending order of length, but the three Johannine letters are kept together, and Jude is placed at the end. The genuine letters of Paul are earlier in date than any of our written Gospels. The dates of the other New Testament letters are more difficult to determine, but for the most part they belong to the second and third Christian generations rather than to the first. The Letter to the Romans Introduction Of all the letters of Paul, that to the Christians at Rome has long held pride of place. It is the longest and most systematic unfolding of the Apostles' thought, expounding the gospel of God's righteousness that saves all who believe. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. It reflects a universal outlook with special implications for Israel's relation to the church. Romans chapters 9 through 11. Yet, like all Paul's letters, Romans 2 arose out of a specific situation when the apostle wrote from Greece, likely Corinth, between A.D. 56 and 58. Compare Acts chapter 20, verses 2 and 3. Paul at that time was about to leave for Jerusalem 
with a collection of funds for the impoverished Jewish Christian believers there, taken up from his predominantly Gentile congregations. Romans chapter 15, verses 25 through 27. He planned then to travel on to Rome and to enlist support there for a mission to Spain. Romans chapter 15, verses 24 and 28. Such a journey had long been on his mind. Romans chapter 1, verses 9 through 13, chapter 15, verse 23. Now, with much missionary preaching successfully accomplished in the East, Romans chapter 15, verse 19, he sought new opportunities in the West. Romans chapter 15, verses 20 and 21, in order to complete the divine plan of evangelization in the Roman world. Yet he recognized that the visit to Jerusalem would be hazardous. Romans chapter 15, verses 30 through 32. And we know from Acts that Paul was arrested there and came to Rome only in chains as a prisoner. Acts chapters 21 through 28, especially Acts chapter 21, verses 30 through 33, and Acts chapter 28, verses 14, 30, and 31. The existence of a Christian community in Rome antedates Paul's letter there. When it arose, likely within the sizable Jewish population at Rome, and how, we do not know. The Roman historian Suetonius mentions an edict of the Emperor Claudius about A.D. 49, ordering the expulsion of Jews from Rome in connection with a certain Crestus, probably involving a dispute in the Jewish community over Jesus as the Messiah, Christus. According to Acts chapter 18, verse 2, Aquila and Priscilla, or Prissa, as in Romans chapter 16, verse 3, were among those driven out. From them, in Corinth, Paul may have learned about conditions in the church at Rome. Opinions vary as to whether Jewish or Gentile Christians predominated in the house churches. Compare Romans chapter 16, verse 5, in the capital city of the empire at the time Paul wrote. Perhaps already by then, Gentile Christians were in the majority. Paul speaks in Romans of both Jews and Gentiles. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 and 29. See note on Romans chapter 1, verse 14. The letter also refers to those weak in faith, Romans chapter 14, verse 1, and those who are strong, Romans chapter 15, verse 1. This terminology may reflect not so much differences between believers of Jewish and of Gentile background, respectively, 
as an ascetic tendency in some converts. Romans chapter 14, verse 2, combined with Jewish laws about clean and unclean foods. Romans chapter 14, verses 14 and 20. The issues were similar to problems that Paul had faced in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. If Romans chapter 16 is part of the letter to Rome, see note on Romans chapter 16 verses 1 through 23. Then Paul had considerable information about conditions in Rome through all these people there whom he knew, and our letter does not just reflect a generalized picture of an earlier situation in Corinth. In any case, Paul writes to introduce himself and his message to the Christians at Rome, seeking to enlist their support for the proposed mission to Spain. He therefore employs formulations likely familiar to the Christians at Rome. See note on the confessional material at Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, and compare Romans chapter 3, verses 25 and 26, chapter 4, verse 25. He cites the Old Testament frequently. Romans chapter 1, verse 17, chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, chapter 4, chapter 9, verse 7, verses 12 and 13, verse 15, verse 17, verses 25 through 29, and verse 33, chapter 10, verses 5 through 13, and verses 15 through 21, chapter 15, verses 9 through 12. The gospel Paul presents is meant to be a familiar one to those in Rome, even though they heard it first from other preachers. As the outline below shows, this gospel of Paul, see Romans chapter 16, verse 25, finds its center in salvation and justification through faith in Christ. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. While God's wrath is revealed against all sin and wickedness of Gentile and Jew alike, Romans chapter 1 verse 18 through chapter 3 verse 20, God's power to save by divine righteous or justifying action in Christ is also revealed. Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17, chapter 3 verse 21, through chapter 5, verse 21. The consequences and implications for those who believe are set forth. Romans chapter 6, verse 1, through chapter 8, verse 39, as are results for those in Israel, Romans chapters 9 through 11, who, to Paul's great sorrow, Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, disbelieve. The Apostle's hope is that, 
just as rejection of the gospel by some in Israel has led to a ministry of salvation for non-Jews, so one day, in God's mercy, all Israel will be saved. Romans chapter 11, verses 11 through 15, verses 25 through 29, verses 30 through 32. The fuller ethical response of believers is also drawn out, both with reference to life in Christ's body, Romans chapter 12, and with regard to the world, Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, on the basis of the eschatological situation, Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14, and conditions in the community, Romans chapter 14, verse 1 through chapter 15, verse 13. Others have viewed Romans more in the light of Paul's earlier, quite polemical letter to the Galatians, and so see the theme as the relationship between Judaism and Christianity, a topic judged to be much in the minds of the Roman Christians. Each of these religious faiths claimed to be the way of salvation based upon a covenant between God and a people chosen and made the beneficiary of divine gifts. But Christianity regarded itself as the prophetic development and fulfillment of the faith of the Old Testament, declaring that the preparatory Mosaic covenant must now give way to the new and more perfect covenant in Jesus Christ. Paul himself had been the implacable advocate of freedom of Gentiles from the laws of the Mosaic covenant and, especially in Galatia, had refused to allow attempts to impose them on Gentile converts to the gospel. He had witnessed the personal hostilities that developed between the adherents of the two faiths and had written his strongly worded letter to the Galatians against those Jewish Christians who were seeking to persuade Gentile Christians to adopt the religious practices of Judaism. For him, the purity of the religious understanding of Jesus as the source of salvation would be seriously impaired if Gentile Christians were obligated to amalgamate the two religious faiths. Still others find the theme of Israel and the church as expressed in Romans chapters 9 through 11 to be the heart of Romans. Then the implication of Paul's exposition of justification by faith rather than by means of law is that the divine plan of salvation works itself out on a broad theological plane to include the whole of humanity, despite the differences in the content of the given religious system to which a human culture is heir. Romans presents a plan of salvation stretching from Adam through Abraham and Moses to Christ. Romans chapters 4 and 5, and on to the future revelation at Christ's parousia. 
Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. Its outlook is universal. Paul's letter to the Romans is a powerful exposition of the doctrine of the supremacy of Christ and of faith in Christ as the source of salvation. It is an implicit plea to the Christians at Rome and to all Christians to hold fast to that faith. They are to resist any pressure put on them to accept a doctrine of salvation through works of the law. See note on Romans chapter 10, verse 4. At the same time, they are not to exaggerate Christian freedom as an abdication of responsibility for others. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 or as a repudiation of God's law and will. See notes on Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 26, chapter 3, verse 31, chapter 7, verses 7 through 12, and verses 13 through 25. The principal divisions of the letter to the Romans are the following. Section 1. Address, chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. Section 2, Humanity Lost Without the Gospel, chapter 1, verse 16, through chapter 3, verse 20. Section 3, Justification Through Faith in Christ, chapter 3, verse 21, through chapter 5, verse 21. Section 4. Justification and the Christian Life. Chapter 6, verse 1, through chapter 8, verse 39. Section 5. Jews and Gentiles in God's Plan. Chapter 9, verse 1, through chapter 11, verse 36. Section 6. The Duties of Christians. Chapter 12, verse 1, through chapter 15, verse 13. Section 7, Conclusion. Chapter 15, verse 14, through chapter 16, verse 27. Romans, Section 1, Address. Chapter 1, Greeting. Paul a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised previously through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the gospel about his Son, descended from David according to the flesh, but established as Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness through resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we have received the grace of apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles, among whom are you also who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all the beloved of God in Rome called to be holy. Grace to you, and peace from God our Father 
and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanksgiving. First, I give thanks to my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is heralded throughout the world. God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in proclaiming the gospel of his Son, that I remember you constantly, always asking in my prayers that somehow, by God's will, I may at last find my way clear to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may share with you some spiritual gift so that you may be strengthened, that is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by one another's faith, yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I often planned to come to you, though I was prevented until now, that I might harvest some fruit among you too, as among the rest of the Gentiles. To Greeks and non-Greeks alike, to the wise and the ignorant, I am under obligation. That is why I am eager to preach the gospel also to you in Rome. Section 2. Humanity Lost Without the Gospel God's Power for Salvation For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, for Jew first and then Greek. For in it is revealed the righteousness of God from faith to faith, as it is written, The one who is righteous by faith will live. Punishment of Idolaters The wrath of God is indeed being revealed from heaven against every impiety and wickedness of those who suppress the truth by their wickedness. For what can be known about God is evident to them because God made it evident to them. Ever since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes of eternal power and divinity have been able to be understood and perceived in what He has made. As a result, they have no excuse. For although they knew God, they did not accord Him glory as God or give Him thanks. Instead, they became vain in their reasoning, and their senseless minds were darkened. While claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the likeness of an image of mortal man or of birds or of four-legged animals or of snakes. Therefore, God handed them over to impurity through the lusts of their hearts 
for the mutual degradation of their bodies. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and revered and worshipped the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Therefore, God handed them over to degrading passions. Their females exchanged natural relations for unnatural, and the males likewise gave up natural relations with females and burned with lust for one another. Males did shameful things with males and thus received in their own persons the due penalty for their perversity. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God handed them over to their undiscerning mind to do what is improper. They are filled with every form of wickedness, evil, greed, and malice, full of envy, murder, rivalry, treachery, and spite. They are gossips and scandalmongers, and they hate God. They are insolent, haughty, boastful, ingenious in their wickedness, and rebellious toward their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know the just decree of God that all who practice such things deserve death, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Romans chapter 2 God's Just Judgment Therefore, you are without excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For by the standard by which you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the very same things. We know that the judgment of God on those who do such things is true. Do you suppose, then, you who judge those who engage in such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you hold His priceless kindness, forbearance, and patience in low esteem, unaware that the kindness of God would lead you to repentance? By your stubbornness and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself, for the day of wrath and revelation of the just judgment of God, who will repay everyone according to his works. Eternal life to those who seek glory, honor, and immortality through perseverance in good works. But wrath and fury to those who selfishly disobey the truth and obey wickedness. Yes, affliction and distress will come upon every human being who does evil, Jew first and then Greek. But there will be glory, honor, and peace 
for everyone who does good, Jew first and then Greek. There is no partiality with God. Judgment by the Interior Law All who sin outside the law will also perish without reference to it, and all who sin under the law will be judged in accordance with it. For it is not those who hear the law who are just in the sight of God, rather those who observe the law will be justified. For when the Gentiles, who do not have the law by nature, observe the prescriptions of the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the demands of the law are written in their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even defend them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge people's hidden works through Christ Jesus. Judgment by the Mosaic Law Now, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast of God and know His will, and are able to discern what is important, since you are instructed from the law, and if you are confident that you are a guide for the blind and a light for those in darkness, that you are a trainer of the foolish and teacher of the simple, because in the law you have the formulation of knowledge and truth, then you who teach another, are you failing to teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who forbid adultery, do you commit adultery? You who detest idols, do you rob temples? You who boast of the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, Because of you the name of God is reviled among the Gentiles. Circumcision, to be sure, has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Again, if an uncircumcised man keeps the precepts of the law, will he not be considered circumcised? Indeed, those who are physically uncircumcised but carry out the law will pass judgment on you with your written law and circumcision who break the law. One is not a Jew outwardly. True circumcision is not outward in the flesh. Rather, one is a Jew inwardly, 
and circumcision is of the heart in the spirit, not the letter. His praise is not from human beings, but from God. Romans chapter 3 Answers to Objections What advantage is there, then, in being a Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every respect. For in the first place, they were entrusted with the utterances of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their infidelity nullify the fidelity of God? Of course not. God must be true, though every human being is a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and conquer when you are judged. But if our wickedness provides proof of God's righteousness, what can we say? Is God unjust, humanly speaking, to inflict his wrath? Of course not. For how else is God to judge the world? But if God's truth redounds to his glory through my falsehood, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not say, as we are accused, and as some claim we say, that we should do evil, that good may come of it. Their penalty is what they deserve. Universal Bondage to Sin Well then, are we better off? Not entirely, for we have already brought the charge against Jews and Greeks alike that they are all under the domination of sin, as it is written. There is no one just, not one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have gone astray. All alike are worthless. There is not one who does good. There is not even one. Their throats are open graves. They deceive with their tongues. The venom of asps is on their lips. Their mouths are full of bitter cursing. Their feet are quick to shed blood. Ruin and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they know not. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what the law says is addressed to those under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced, and the whole world stand accountable to God, since no human being will be justified in his sight by observing the law. For through the law comes consciousness of sin. Section 3 Justification Through Faith in Christ Justification Apart from the Law 
but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, though testified to by the law and the prophets, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and are deprived of the glory of God. They are justified freely by His grace through the redemption in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as an expiation through faith by His blood to prove His righteousness because of the forgiveness of sins previously committed through the forbearance of God, to prove His righteousness in the present time, that He might be righteous and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. What occasion is there then for boasting? It is ruled out. On what principle? That of works? No, rather on the principle of faith. For we consider that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Does God belong to Jews alone? Does He not belong to Gentiles too? Yes, also to Gentiles, for God is one and will justify the circumcised on the basis of faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Are we then annulling the law by this faith? Of course not. On the contrary, we are supporting the law. Romans chapter 4 Abraham justified by faith What then can we say that Abraham found, our ancestor according to the flesh? Indeed, if Abraham was justified on the basis of his works, he has reason to boast. But this was not so in the sight of God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. A worker's wage is credited not as a gift, but as something due. But when one does not work, yet believes in the one who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So also David declares the blessedness of the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not record. Does this blessedness apply only to the circumcised or to the uncircumcised as well? Now we assert that faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was he circumcised or not? He was not circumcised, 
but uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal on the righteousness received through faith while he was uncircumcised. Thus, he was to be the father of all the uncircumcised who believe, so that to them also righteousness might be credited, as well as the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but also follow the path of faith that our father Abraham walked while still uncircumcised. Inheritance Through Faith It was not through the law that the promise was made to Abraham and his descendants that he would inherit the world, but through the righteousness that comes from faith. For if those who adhere to the law are the heirs, faith is null, and the promise is void. For the law produces wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. For this reason it depends on faith, so that it may be a gift, and the promise may be guaranteed to all his descendants, not to those who only adhere to the law, but to those who follow the faith of Abraham, who is the father of all of us, as it is written, I have made you father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead, and calls into being what does not exist. He believed, hoping against hope, that he would become the father of many nations, according to what was said, Thus shall your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body as already dead, for he was almost a hundred years old, and the dead womb of Sarah. He did not doubt God's promise in unbelief. Rather, he was empowered by faith and gave glory to God, and was fully convinced that what he had promised he was also able to do. That is why it was credited to him as righteousness. But it was not for him alone that it was written that it was credited to him. It was also for us, to whom it will be credited, who believe in the one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was handed over for our transgressions and was raised for our justification. Romans chapter 5 Faith, Hope, and Love Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith to this grace in which we stand, and we boast in hope of the glory of God. 
Not only that, but we even boast of our afflictions, knowing that affliction produces endurance, and endurance proven character, and proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. For Christ, while we were still helpless, yet died at the appointed time for the ungodly. Indeed, only with difficulty does one die for a just person, though perhaps for a good person one might even find courage to die. But God proves His love for us in that, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more, then, since we are now justified by His blood, will we be saved through Him from the wrath? Indeed, if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, how much more, once reconciled, will we be saved by His life? Not only that, but we also boast of God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Humanity's Sin Through Adam Therefore, just as through one person sin entered the world, and through sin death, and thus death came to all, inasmuch as all sinned. For up to the time of the law sin was in the world, though sin is not accounted when there is no law. But death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin after the pattern of the trespass of Adam, who is the type of the one who was to come. Grace and Life Through Christ But the gift is not like the transgression. For if by that one person's transgression the many died, how much more did the grace of God and the gracious gift of the one person, Jesus Christ, overflow for the many. And the gift is not like the result of the one person's sinning, for after one sin there was the judgment that brought condemnation. But the gift, after many transgressions, brought acquittal. For if, by the transgression of one person, death came to reign through that one, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of justification come to reign in life through the one person, Jesus Christ? In conclusion, just as through one transgression condemnation 
came upon all, so through one righteous act acquittal and life came to all. For just as through the disobedience of one person the many were made sinners, so through the obedience of one the many will be made righteous. The law entered in so that transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace overflowed all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through justification for eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans, Section 4, Justification and the Christian Life. Chapter 6, Freedom from Sin, Life in God. What then shall we say? Shall we persist in sin that grace may abound? Of course not. How can we who died to sin yet live in it? Or are you unaware that we who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were indeed buried with him through baptism into death, so that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might live in newness of life. For if we have grown into union with him through a death like his, we shall also be united with him in the resurrection. We know that our old self was crucified with him, so that our sinful body might be done away with, that we might no longer be in slavery to sin. For a dead person has been absolved from sin. If, then, we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. We know that Christ, raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has power over him. As to his death, he died to sin once and for all. As to his life, he lives for God. Consequently, you too must think of yourselves as being dead to sin and living for God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, sin must not reign over your mortal bodies so that you obey their desires. And do not present the parts of your bodies to sin as weapons for wickedness, but present yourselves to God as raised from the dead to life, and the parts of your bodies to God as weapons for righteousness. For sin is not to have any power over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Of course not. 
do you not know that if you present yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that although you were once slaves of sin, you have become obedient from the heart to the pattern of teaching to which you were entrusted. Freed from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your nature. For just as you presented the parts of your bodies as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness for lawlessness, so now present them as slaves to righteousness for sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free from righteousness. But what profit did you get then from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been freed from sin, and have become slaves of God, the benefit that you have leads to sanctification, and its end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans chapter 7 Freedom from the Law are you unaware, brothers, for I am speaking to people who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over one as long as one lives? Thus, a married woman is bound by law to her living husband. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law in respect to her husband. Consequently, while her husband is alive, she will be called an adulteress if she consorts with another man. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and she is not an adulteress if she consorts with another man. In the same way, my brothers, you also were put to death to the law through the body of Christ so that you might belong to another, to the one who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the flesh, our sinful passions, awakened by the law, worked in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, dead to what held us captive, so that we may serve in the newness of the Spirit, and not under the obsolete letter. Acquaintance with Sin Through the Law What then can we say? That the law is sin? Of course not. Yet I did not know sin except through the law and I did not know 
what it is to covet, except that the law said, You shall not covet. But sin, finding an opportunity in the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin is dead. I once lived outside the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive. Then I died, and the commandment that was for life turned out to be death for me. For sin, seizing an opportunity in the commandment, deceived me, and through it put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Sin and Death Did the good, then, become death for me? Of course not. Sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin, worked death in me through the good, so that sin might become sinful beyond measure through the commandment. We know that the law is spiritual. But I am carnal, sold into slavery to sin. What I do, I do not understand. For I do not do what I want, but I do what I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I concur that the law is good. So now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that good does not dwell in me, that is, in my flesh. The willing is ready at hand, but doing the good is not. For I do not do the good I want, but I do the evil I do not want. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So then, I discover the principle that when I want to do right, evil is at hand. For I take delight in the law of God in my inner self. But I see in my members another principle at war with the law of my mind, taking me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Miserable one that I am! Who will deliver me from this mortal body? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, I myself, with my mind, serve the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. Romans chapter 8 The Flesh and the Spirit Hence, now there is no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has freed you from the law of sin and death. For what the law, weakened by the flesh, was powerless to do, this God has done, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for the sake of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the righteous decree of the law might be fulfilled in us, who live not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh are concerned with the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit with the things of the Spirit. The concern of the flesh is death, but the concern of the Spirit is life and peace. For the concern of the flesh is hostility toward God. It does not submit to the law of God, nor can it. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh. On the contrary, you are in the Spirit, if only the Spirit of God dwells in you. Whoever does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. If the Spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, the one who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his Spirit that dwells in you. Consequently, brothers, we are not debtors to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Children of God through adoption. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received a spirit of adoption through which we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if only we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Destiny of Glory I consider that the sufferings of this present time are as nothing compared with the glory to be revealed for us. For creation awaits with eager expectation the revelation of the children of God. 
for creation was made subject to futility, not of its own accord, but because of the one who subjected it, in hope that creation itself would be set free from slavery to corruption and share in the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that all creation is groaning in labor pains even until now. And not only that, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we also groan within ourselves as we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Now hope that sees for itself is not hope. For who hopes for what one sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait with endurance. In the same way, the Spirit, too, comes to the aid of our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit itself intercedes with inexpressible groanings. And the one who searches hearts knows what is the intention of the Spirit, because it intercedes for the holy ones according to God's will. God's Indomitable Love in Christ We know that all things work for good for those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. For those He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What, then, shall we say to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son but handed him over for us all. How will he not also give us everything else along with him? Who will bring a charge against God's chosen ones? It is God who acquits us. Who will condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, rather was raised, who also is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. What will separate us from the love of Christ? Will anguish, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or the sword? As it is written, For your sake, we are being slain all the day. We are looked upon as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we conquer overwhelmingly through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels 
nor principalities, nor present things, nor future things, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans Section 5 Jews and Gentiles in God's Plan Chapter 9 Paul's Love for Israel I speak the truth in Christ. I do not lie. My conscience joins with the Holy Spirit in bearing me witness that I have great sorrow and constant anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kin according to the flesh. They are Israelites, theirs the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. Theirs the patriarchs, and from them, according to the flesh, is the Messiah. God, who is over all, be blessed forever. Amen. God's Free Choice But it is not that the word of God has failed, for not all who are of Israel are Israel, nor are they all children of Abraham, because they are his descendants. But it is through Isaac that descendants shall bear your name. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as descendants. For this is the wording of the promise, About this time I shall return, and Sarah will have a son. And not only that, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one husband, our father Isaac, before they had yet been born, or had done anything, good or bad, in order that God's elective plan might continue, not by works, but by his call, she was told, The older shall serve the younger. As it is written, I loved Jacob, but hated Esau. What then are we to say? Is there injustice on the part of God? Of course not. For he says to Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will. I will take pity on whom I will. So it depends not upon a person's will or exertion, but upon God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, This is why I have raised you up, to show my power through you, that my name may be proclaimed throughout the earth. Consequently, he has mercy upon whom he wills, and he hardens whom he wills. You will say to me then, Why then 
does he still find fault? For who can oppose his will? But who indeed are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Will what is made say to its maker, Why have you created me so? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for a noble purpose and another for an ignoble one? What if God, wishing to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath made for destruction? This was to make known the riches of his glory to the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared previously for glory, namely, us, whom he has called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Witness of the Prophets As indeed he says in Hosea, Those who were not my people I will call my people, and her who was not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called children of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the Israelites were like the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. For decisively and quickly will the Lord execute sentence upon the earth. And, as Isaiah predicted, Unless the Lord of hosts had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom, and have been made like Gomorrah. Righteousness Based on Faith What then shall we say? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have achieved it? That is, righteousness that comes from faith. But that Israel, who pursued the law of righteousness, did not attain to that law? Why not? Because they did it not by faith, but as if it could be done by works. They stumbled over the stone that causes stumbling, as it is written, Behold, I am laying a stone in Zion that will make people stumble, and a rock that will make them fall, and whoever believes in him shall not be put to shame. Romans chapter 10 Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God on their behalf is for salvation. I testify with regard to them that they have zeal for God, but it is not discerning. For in their unawareness of the righteousness that comes from God and their attempt to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law 
for the justification of everyone who has faith. Moses writes about the righteousness that comes from the law. The one who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that comes from faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will go up into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down? Or, Who will go down into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead? But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we preach. For if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For one believes with the heart, and so is justified, and one confesses with the mouth, and so is saved. For the scripture says, No one who believes in him will be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, enriching all who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how can they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone to preach? And how can people preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news! But not everyone has heeded the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what was heard from us? Thus, faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the word of Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Certainly they did. For their voice has gone forth to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But, I ask, did not Israel understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a senseless nation I will make you angry. Then Isaiah speaks boldly and says, I was found by those who were not seeking me. I revealed myself to those who were not asking for me. But regarding Israel, he says, All day long I stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contentious people. Romans Chapter 11 The Remnant of Israel I ask then, has God rejected his people? Of course not. 
for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is God's response to him? I have left for myself seven thousand men who have not knelt to Baal. So also at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if by grace it is no longer because of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. What then? What Israel was seeking it did not attain, but the elect attained it. The rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of deep sleep, eyes that should not see, and ears that should not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes grow dim so that they may not see, and keep their backs bent forever. The Gentiles' Salvation Hence I ask, did they stumble so as to fall? Of course not. But through their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is enrichment for the world, and if their diminished number is enrichment for the Gentiles, how much more their full number? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch, then, as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I glory in my ministry in order to make my race jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first fruits are holy, so is the whole batch of dough. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in their place, and have come to share in the rich root of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. If you do boast, Consider that you do not support the root, the root supports you. Indeed, you will say, Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is so. They were broken off 
because of unbelief, but you are there because of faith. So do not become haughty, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, perhaps he will not spare you either. See then the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who fell. But God's kindness to you, provided you remain in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And they also, if they do not remain in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated one, how much more will they who belong to it by nature be grafted back into their own olive tree? God's Irrevocable Call I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers, so that you will not become wise in your own estimation. A hardening has come upon Israel in part until the full number of the Gentiles comes in, and thus all Israel will be saved, as it is written, The Deliverer will come out of Zion, he will turn away godlessness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. In respect to the gospel, they are enemies on your account. But in respect to election, they are beloved because of the patriarchs. For the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. Triumph of God's Mercy Just as you once disobeyed God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they have now disobeyed in order that, by virtue of the mercy shown to you, they too may now receive mercy. For God delivered all to disobedience, that he might have mercy upon all. O oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How inscrutable are his judgments, and how unsearchable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given him anything that he may be repaid? For from him, and through him, and for him, are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Romans, Section 6, The Duties of Christians, Chapter 12, Sacrifice of Body and Mind. I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, 
holy, and pleasing to God, your spiritual worship. Do not conform yourselves to this age, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and pleasing and perfect. Many Parts in One Body For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than one ought to think, but to think soberly, each according to the measure of faith that God has apportioned. For as in one body we have many parts, and all the parts do not have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually parts of one another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us exercise them. If prophecy in proportion to the faith, if ministry in ministering, if one is a teacher in teaching, if one exhorts in exhortation, if one contributes in generosity, if one is over others with diligence, if one does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Mutual Love Let love be sincere. Hate what is evil. Hold on to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Anticipate one another in showing honor. Do not grow slack in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Endure in affliction. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the holy ones. Exercise hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Have the same regard for one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be concerned for what is noble in the sight of all. If possible, on your part, live at peace with all. Beloved, do not look for revenge, but leave room for the wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Rather, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink.
for by so doing you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Romans chapter 13 Obedience to Authority Let every person be subordinate to the higher authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority opposes what God has appointed, and those who oppose it will bring judgment upon themselves.